featuring interviews and commentary from Animal Rights Zone, the online social network for humans who seek justice for other animals. You can find us on the web at www.arzone.net. I'm your host, Carolyn Bailey. In today's episode, Tim Geyer and I are pleased to welcome back to AR Zone, Professor Robert Garner. Rob Garner is Professor of Political Theory at the University of Leicester in the UK who has, for more than two decades, specialised in animal rights. Rob is the author of six books in this area, including 2010's The Animal Rights Debate, Abolition or Regulation, which included a dialogue with Gary Francione, 2005's The Political Theory of Animal Rights, and most recently 2013's A Theory of Justice for Animals. We'll be speaking with Professor Garner about that book today. Rob, thanks for joining us today and welcome back to AR Zone. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Rob, you write that your book attempts to consider our treatment of animals within the prism of justice rather than from within a moral or ethical framework. That may sound foreign to many of our listeners who are likely to think of animal rights as primarily an ethical matter. What exactly are you talking about here? Well, as a, as a political philosopher, it seemed natural to focus on justice, since justice is a, a central political concept, if not the, the most important concept that political philosophers have, have dealt with. And I was conscious that animals are pretty much excluded from the literature on justice. So if we take the two most important, the two political philosophers who are regarded as the most important uh, scholars, John Rawls and Michael Sandel, they both pretty much ignore the question of animals. Um, Rawls explicitly excludes animals but doesn't say much about the issue. Michael Sandel wrote a uh, three, four hundred page textbook on on the topic which has been seen by a large audience um, and doesn't mention animals once. There's not one mention of animals in the index of that book. So it seems that the literature on animals at the philosophical level, at least, has been concerned largely with morality or ethics rather than within, within, uh, with justice. And it's kind of assumed by a lot of animal ethicists that justice and morality are the same thing. Um, but some argue that these, these moral arguments about animals are not political ones, that, and the implication is that animal rights isn't then a political issue. Now, I, I, I don't agree with that, of course. Um, I don't, we wouldn't want to say that discussions about human rights is somehow unpolitical. So it seems strange to say that issues about animal rights are, are non-political. But I kind of saw what they were getting at here, that, that for, for, for some people, animal rights is an issue of individual conscience. And I think the, the campaigning strategies uh, based, for instance, on changing diet, you know, the go vegan slogan, is kind of an indication of that because it's, it kind of suggests that all we've got to do is persuade enough people that, uh, to change their diets for um, uh, the, the, the world order to be changed, if you like. And I'm often asked when I do interviews like this, but I'm often asked by animal advocates whether I'm a vegetarian or, or a vegan or neither. Um, and I'm often tempted to reply, though I haven't up to now, I'm often tempted to reply that it doesn't really matter as far as I'm concerned because it's, it's, it's whether my arguments are right that matters and not what I personally do. Um, so my, I guess my interest in justice came about because of my conviction that animal rights has got to be a political issue, a public policy issue, uh, because only then is the state obliged to protect animals, and only then will the state force people to protect animals if they don't much want to. And of course this is where justice comes in, because to behave unjustly, is seen as a much more important failing than behaving immorally. So the two, I think the two are linked, and um, uh, theorists have great difficulty distinguishing between justice and morality, and the two are obviously linked, but it's possible to see areas of immorality 
that we wouldn't want the state to inter interfe interfere, to intervene, to prohibit. Um, so only if, only if the treatment of animals is regarded as a justice issue does it seem to me to lead to the conviction that the state ought to be obliged to act to protect animals. So that, that's really my starting point. And I guess the book is, um, the, the three questions that the book deals with are linked to that general context. So I ask, can animals be recipients of justice? What do animals stand to gain from being recipients of justice? And, and what are animals due as a matter of justice? Rob, you just mentioned that the, the, there are areas of morality that we wouldn't want to make political, I think is what you said. Could you yeah. give an example of something like that? Uh, well, I guess, you know, um, we may disapprove of uh, someone being promiscuous, uh, leading a personal life which we personally wouldn't. But we, we wouldn't then want the state to intervene to prohibit their behaviour. Uh, we'd just frown and tut at their behaviour, but uh, we wouldn't necessarily want the state to intervene. Um, I mean, I, I guess this, this distinction um, is best explored by using John Stuart Mill's distinction between self and other regarding action that the only reason that the state should intervene to uh, limit freedom is if our actions are causing harm to others in the sense that they're causing some kind of physical harm. But he specifically ruled out hurting someone's feelings, for instance, or behaving in a way which, which others found morally problematic as, as reasons for the state to intervene. And I think, you know, I think the animals issue does, does fall victim of this distinction um, because the liberal states sees it as, as acceptable to offer vegetarians and vegans an alternative and, and sees that at the, as the end of the process, uh, providing that individuals are allowed to pursue the moral, uh, their moral uh, 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 Objectives, and then the state's role is finished, and that's essentially what John Rawls argues that the state should, the liberal state should merely exist to, to uh, ensure that individual conceptions of the good, as he calls them, are, are protected. But the state itself shouldn't have a, a role in determining what those goods are. So that's where we see um, there are some conflicts like. Uh for example, where you have um, people who follow Islam living in a country that's traditionally been a Christian country and debates coming up about what the proper attire of uh, uh, women teachers in the classroom, for example, shouldn't be allowed yeah. to wear the veils, things like that. But So it's, yeah. it's a conflict between private morality and political uh, rules and regulations. It's not quite as simple as that in the sense that, that liberals have problems with multiculturalism, of course, because arguably some, some practices within some religions may well cause harm, or, or people may think they cause harm to others. Right. Um, so we, you know, we wouldn't want to adopt a relativist form of morality which says that all, all behavior should be accepted, providing that people, uh, that, that a, a certain religious group or cultural group regards it as. As, as, as their uh, cultural right. Um, but if we adopt the Miller principle, then we then clearly actions which harm others, uh, irrespective of how far they're part of a, of a long-standing culture, uh, can be prohibited by the state. Rob, the subtitle of your latest book is Animal Rights in a Non-Ideal World. In the book's introduction, you write, um, this is the first work that attempts to apply both ideal and non-ideal theory to animal ethics. Would you please explain further what that means? Yes, uh, um, this distinction between ideal and non-ideal theory is, is uh, an area which is uh, pursued a great deal by within political theory and within philosophy in general now. Um, and so ideal theories 
focus on on the validity of a theory of justice or morality in in relation to how far it's considered to approximate to the truth, irrespective of how close we are to achieving that goal, um, irrespective of how far normative arguments can can arrive at the truth. Um, but what what non-ideal theorists argue that this isn't the only criterion of adequacy it's possible to adopt because it's argued that a theory of justice must also be judged in relation to its feasibility, how far it's practic practically possible to achieve at any given point. Um, so for some, a valid theory of justice must consider how we get from where we are now to where we want to be. And this is kind of the... the the, the terrain of non-ideal theory. And I, I guess non-ideal theory arose because political philosophers have become rather marginalised. Um, I mean, if you do a, uh, an introductory course in, in, in the greats of the history of political thought, uh, you will look at political thinkers, you know, such as Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, Marx, um, and culminating in Rawls, all of whom offer these large-scale accounts of a desirable political order with very abstract arguments um, uh, telling, telling us exactly how our political system ought to look, irrespective of how we, uh, you know, the, the, our capacity to achieve them. Um, so Rousseau, for instance, argues that we that the most desirable political community is a large-scale part is a small-scale participatory democracy. And of course, the obvious retort to that is, well, how far is that possible in the modern industrial society? So I think, you know, um, the increasing interest in non-ideal theory emerges as a result of increasing frustration by many at the discre uh, discrepancy between this, this abstract normative work and, uh, uh, and the difficulty of applying those kind of principles in the, in the non-ideal real world taking into account the way people are now and the social and economic constraints and political constraints that, that, uh, that exist. And I guess John Rawls's theory of justice, published in the 1970s, is a kind of last great attempt to provide this kind of uh, 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 ideal theory of justice. Political philosophers nowadays are much less uh, confident of, of offering that kind of... Uh, you know, major accounts of our of, of of an ideal political order. Some people might say that that um, staying away from that sort of ideal theory shows um, a, maybe a lack of a lack of will or a lack of vision or a lack of wanting to you know achieve what's best. But that's a misunderstanding of what non-ideal theory is, isn't it? Depends which version you you look at. I mean, there's so many different accounts of non-ideal theory these days. I mean, some use it as, as, a, as a shorthand for trying to find a consensus between different moral views. So its, it's aim is kind of the resolution of moral conflict more than anything else. But yes, I mean, for Rawls, who ironic, somewhat ironically, given that he writes uh, a classic book of ideal theory, does actually engage with non-ideal theory within it. And his argument that any valid non-ideal theory must must have uh, must have at the back of its mind the goal to which you're aiming. So the changes you make, the reforms you recommend from a non-ideal perspective must not uh, inhibit the achievement of those ideal goals. Uh, but there are some political philosophers who don't think ideal theory is 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 is, is worth doing. They would say that we should focus, focus the political theory should focus entirely on, on the non-ideal world to be relevant. So when you think about the non-ideal world, it's important to distinguish between holding a theory that's achievable, although difficult, or maybe um, far off in the future. And I think you make the point in the book that your non-ideal theory can't be at odds with what your preferred position would be. But there's a difference between that and holding a, a position that's unachievable, as good as it might be, given the sorts of creatures that we are. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I mean, Rawls offers us a, a valuable distinction between ideal theory and, and what he calls utopianism. Um, so I, ideal theory for Rawls, uh, to quote him, but presents a conception of a just society that we are to achieve if we can. But even ideal theory must take into account the, the constraints afforded by human nature. Um, so it's equivalent to what he describes as a, a realistic utopia, which involves, again, again, quoting him, taking men as they are and laws as they might be. So for, for, for Rawls, a theory of just, an ideal theory of justice is only achievable if it can achieve full compliance. That is, if enough people can be persuaded to accept it. You asked three questions at the at the beginning of the book, which you mentioned earlier, and I want to ask what what are the principal benefits about thinking of the rights of animals as a matter of justice? Because of the high status that justice has, um, justice is regarded as uh, the most important goal within political communities, so that to act unjustly is seen to be uh, something which can't be ignored, which the state has to respond to. Um, and it's, it's, it's no good retort, uh, replying to a claim that some, some situation or some behaviour is unjust by offering it, by, by suggesting a kind of a voluntary response. It has to be one which, is, which the state is obliged to make. Um, so if you had, to, you know, if you if you had a claim made in the language of morality, compared with a claim made in the language of justice, then the chances are that the the, the, the claim made in the language of justice would have priority. Okay, so if, for example, and this may not be exactly right, but for example, if if a person were to say, as a matter of morality, I think it's wrong to um, for the person that owns the company to make more than five times as much as the lowest wage person. But that's not the same thing as a matter of justice about, say, minimum wage or, or equal time for equal pay and so on. Is that... Does that yeah, that's right. So Rawls actually does offer us um, uh, various principles of justice which... And it, it, you know, it, it's, it's not a matter of individual choice whether these principles are adopted. They are because they are a matter of justice. The state must intervene to ensure they happen. Um, and, and of course, you know, Rawls is regarded as a left-leaning egalitarian because um, he adopts a principle which sets out the limits of how, how you know, uh, of the limits of how resources should be unequally distributed. Resources should be distributed only in a way which benefits the least, uh, those in society who have the least. Um, so, yeah. Um, I mean, many would argue, for instance, that, that issues of unequal distribution in the world is a matter of justice and not of charity. Therefore, uh, we should be obliged to redistribute the world's resources applies as a matter of justice, but more often than not, it's regarded as a matter of charity. Um, individuals are, are asked to contribute to various charitable causes, um, um, seeking a, a redistribution of resources. Many would argue that that's a matter of justice, which means it, it, is the con it should be the concern of the state. So just, the justice and the state are kind of synonymous here. Um, if you talk about justice, you are you immediately uh, bring in the state, and that seems to me to me it seems to me to be important for animal advocates because ultimately uh, um, animal rights will only occur if it becomes a matter of public policy and not individual morality. Right. So it's not so it's not a matter of someone doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing in a moral sense. 
It's a matter of setting public policy and using the power of the state to compel people to do what society has deemed to be in everyone's best interest. Yeah. And rights are grounded in interests, correct? Yes. Um, that, I mean, that's, that's a, a big topic in itself, but... Sure. Um, uh, do you want me to explore that now? Or? Well, on, only only to say that that because it's important from the standpoint of 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 answering who has rights, the theory of rights that you hold isn't based on like some Kantian notion of dignity, for example. Is that right? Yeah, that, that that's correct. I, I mean, uh, an, an aside too about the nature of rights is that that. Uh, the, the language of rights seems most appropriate to use in the context of justice. Uh, I mean, an alternative, uh, an alternative theory of morality, of course, is utilitarianism. But what utilitarian, what, what act utilitarianism doesn't do is to protect individual interests in the way which rights theory does. Um, it, I mean, in terms of the in terms of a, a, an interest-based based rights theory, um, uh, it seems to me, I mean, the whole, the, the book is based, my preferred theory of rights is based on interests. And I argue that, a, that a, an interest-based theory of rights has been largely disguised in the literature because of the, 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 the dominance of, of, of Tom Regan's account of animal rights, which is based on a, Kantian or neo-Kantian account of, of rights, and that has, seems to me that's coloured the whole animal rights debate. And um, the, the 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 issue of rights being being a matter of interests has been somewhat lost over the years. But I think it is a much more sophisticated and nuanced position, uh, which seems to me to be more realistic and um, normatively correct. Rob, you're very careful to differentiate between an animal rights position and what's commonly referred to as the animal welfare position. What are the problems you see with the animal welfare position? Well, uh, the animal welfare position is, uh, is, is often regarded as, as uh, the classic case of a non-ideal theory for animal rights thinkers um, and you know I, I, my, my position has often been taken to be an animal welfare position as opposed to an animal rights one it seems to me um, that the problem the main problem with an animal welfare position is it, is it offers no side constraints on animal suffering and my position is that there's no reason to think that an animal's interest in avoiding suffering is, is any less morally significant than a human's interest in avoiding suffering. And any, any valid uh, ideal or non-ideal theory should take that insight into account. Um, and it, indeed, I, th I, th I think probably that the most grievous injustice that can be done to animals is, is the infliction of suffering. But the problem with animal welfare is that it allows this to happen too often um, because, as I said, it provides no side constraints, uh, limiting the infliction of suffering, uh, infliction of suffering on animals, uh, provided that the benefit to humans are deemed to be necessary. So this notion of unnecessary suffering seems to me to be a huge problem for, for, for animal welfare. And my alternative non-ideal theory is based on uh, uh, the position that animals have a right not to suffer uh, because non-human animals, in my view, have an interest in not suffering and a strong enough interest uh, for them to be accorded rights. Um, and this position is different from the animal welfare ethic because according to the animal welfare ethic, it's permissible morally to inflict suffering on an animal provided that the benefit to be gained from so doing or perceived to be sufficiently large or sufficiently necessary. This would be directly ruled out by 
uh, my um, uh, by a theory of animal rights based on uh, prohibiting suffering. So your position on the rights of other animals is not the same as, um, say, Tom Reagan's, Peter Singer's or Gary Francione's, for example, is it? it um, would you briefly tell us what you see as some of the pitfalls of what you refer to as species egalitarianism? Yes, the, 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 the conventional animal rights position is, is, is based on the view that uh, what is wrong with our treatment of animals is their use irrespective of what is done to animals whilst they're being used. So to use animals, according to the Convention on Animal Rights position, is exploitative. It shows a lack of respect to animals. Um, the problem with that position, though, is it, it, it in my view, it's too broad. Uh, I know that uh, uh, Donaldson and Kimlicker in their, uh, their, their recent book make the point that, that one of the problems with this abolitionist position is that it doesn't take into account the, the relationships which humans have with animals which aren't exploitative or at least don't cause animal suffering. So it seems to me that, that the abolitionist, abolitionist position is not um, nuanced enough to be able to take into account the particular interests animals have. It, it doesn't enable us to distinguish between different capacities that human and animals might have and to draw conclusions about rights from those. It immediately rules out the use of animals on the grounds that to do so uh, is, is exploitative. But, you know, exploitation in that context is not really explained. What is it about the use of animals that, that is exploitative and there's, there's a bit of a circular argument that goes on here um, um, because of the failure to define what's meant by exploitative. So the use of animals is wrong. Why is it wrong? Because it's exploitative. Um, what, what would be an example of humans using other animals that would not be exploitative? Well, that would depend upon your uh, your analysis of the interests animals have. Uh, my argument is that, that whilst it is clearly the case that animals have an interest in not suffering, not, not, being, not having inflict, uh, suffering inflicted on them by, by humans, uh, it's not so clear that animals have an equivalent interest in uh, life to humans, and it's not so clear that animals have an interest, an equivalent interest in liberty uh, to humans. So, um, by being able to distinguish between those different criteria, it enables you to to compartmentalise the arguments a little bit more carefully. You know, the, the debate about the value of animal lives is is an endless one, and I don't. <laughs> I, I don't think you will ever reach a conclusion on it. What I try to do, in, at least in my non-ideal theory, is to bracket that completely and say, let's leave that to one side because you're not going to win the argument anytime soon. Let's focus instead on what we, what we uh, know to be wrong, and that's the infliction of suffering on, on animals by, by humans. And what is more, I think also this, the, the, the issue of suffering is the one which has most public resonance too. If you look at what people say in opinion polls about what's wrong with, say, animal experimentation, uh, it doesn't tend to be the, their, their use per se. It tends to be what is done to them whilst they're being used. And um, so that's why I focus on suffering uh, as, as, as the... the, the is a central part of my non-ideal theory. Uh, but I'm not saying, and I've been accused of this, um, I'm not saying that animals have no interest in continued life. Um, but it seems to me that it's a very difficult argument to justify the claim that animals have an equivalent interest in continued life to, to humans. And it seems to me that by focusing on that and getting embroiled in, in endless arguments about that, that it, it, you we then lose sight of what is the key, the key injustice uh, 
imposed on animals, and that is the infliction of suffering. And, and what, what, uh, sorry, what, what, what the kind of Regan-esque view of animal rights uh, doesn't allow you to do is, is, to, uh, is to specify what it is about the use of animals that's, that's morally problematic. In regard to suffering, Rob, um, if we were to accept that other animals have a right not to suffer, that in itself would mean radical changes in the way that humans relate to and use other animals in itself. So that th there's a huge significance in that. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the response I've had to this when I've... When I've uh, uh, given uh, talks at, at various meetings on, on this topic. It's been interesting because on the one hand are those who say this approach is inadequate because it doesn't go far enough in recognising the value of animal lives and I've received some quite, quite, uh, uh, quite harsh responses to that. But with other audiences I get the, uh, the entirely the opposite conclusion that um, that eradicating suffering is simply not politically possible in the current climate. Um, so the fact that I, I'm getting flack on both sides suggests I've got it about right. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, if you, I'd, I'd make a number of brief responses to this. I, I, think, I think in the first place, a crucial point is that there's, it seems to me there's a great deal of utility for a a social movement presenting its case in terms of rights, uh, precisely because that, as with the concept of justice itself, rights is such a high status in political discourse. There's little chance, it seems to me, that any, any cause will be taken seriously in the contemporary world that, that can't be expressed as a demand, uh, as a rights-based demand, a demand for the recognition or enforcement of rights. Uh, and I think that's probably more the case in the United States than it is in, in, in Europe. But nevertheless, it seems, it seems that the social movement based on rights is much more powerful than one based on the more kind of woolly notion of, of welfare. And it does enable animal rights, the animal rights movement to distinguish itself from you know, an everyday concern for the, for the welfare of animals, because everyone claims to be concerned about welfare of animals and it covers so much ground. Mm. Um, but the, the, also, the, the second point I'd make in, in response to the claim that it's, it's politically unrealistic is that um, the eradication of suffering, which my non-ideal theory tries to do, still allows for animals to be used. Um, so farming animals for food and using them for uh, in, in experiments are not therefore necessarily ruled out. What's ruled out is the suffering. And this seems to me to put uh, you know, pressure on those who, who insist upon using animals to make sure they, they come up, if they want to continue doing it, to come up with a means of doing it without inflicting suffering. And it may not be possible. But I think you know, if you had a continuum, a continuum of suffering, clearly some forms of Husbandry are more uh, uh, benign to animals than others. And, you know, much important scientific research can still go ahead using animals without suffering. So, it's, it, you know, depending on what you regard as your bottom line in terms of reducing or eliminating suffering, it, it could potentially allow for animals still to be used in a number of contexts. And that's how it differs from, uh, you know, the mainstream abolitionist position. Would you would you say that part of the problem with the species egalitarian position is that it rules out such things as the keeping of uh, animals as companions in the home, and um, almost seems to require that human beings. Um, almost eliminate interactions with other animals that are in anything other than uh, natural settings, whatever that's supposed to mean. 
I think in some accounts it does. Yeah, this is the point that Donaldson and Kimball can make. That I mean, their, their account of of, uh, uh, of animal rights is based on a relational uh, theory, which, which argues that you know that the, the obligations we owe to animals uh, occurs as a result of the relationship we have with them. Uh, so, from an abolitionist, from from the most um, you know um, uh, abolitionist animal rights position, that that relationship would no longer exist. So I think there is a tendency for some animal ethicists to draw that conclusion that, that any use of animals, even even to have animals as companions, is is morally illegitimate. And not only is that morally problematic, it's also political. I think Donaldson and Kimmler could call it politically ca- catastrophic for the animal rights movement because it, it, it doesn't then plug into... To, to those who do have relationships of a positive nature with, with with animals, and it also you know it doesn't reflect, to in my experience anyway, it doesn't reflect the experience of people in the animal rights movement um, who don't want this kind of separate domain of, where animals exist in one one domain and humans ex- exist in another, and never the twain shall meet. And so. Uh theory of animal rights that um, holds forth that that sort of uh, non-interaction between human and other animals is, is what we're seeking. That's what leads to the, to the, uh, the um, recognizing that sort of position as an unrealistic utopia. Is that right? Partly. Uh, that, that's part of it. I think... Um, I think it goes deeper than that, actually. Um, and again, you know, rules regards rules admits that determining what is a utopian position, as opposed to an ideal theory, is is a matter of what he calls conjecture and speculation. So it's you know, there's there's no there's no rules to follow here. But it does seem to me that that um, the, the goals of the abolitionist animal rights movement is problematic on not just the issue of companions, but also the abolition of other uses of animals too. Um, and I'm often, when I've raised this um, in, in talks I've given, the response I get is that, is, is that you know, this is what was said of the, you know, before the civil rights movement had the effect it did and the women's movement and so forth. But I think there is a qualitatively different uh, a qualitative, qualitative difference between those movements which are based on human beings and, and the animal rights movement which seeks uh, a radical change across the species divide. Um, I mean, you can't prove that, that an abolitionist animal rights view is utopian. Um, it seems to me it does raise a number of problems. So my objection to it is based partly on ethical principle that I don't think it enables you to to take into account with enough uh, rigor the different interests that animals have and humans have, but but it but it it, it also seems to me uh, approaches utopianism in its in its uh, political unrealism too. Right. If I may, I'd like to change topics a little bit and ask about the process of writing a book such as the one you've just completed, if that's okay. Sure. So before I ask a question, I, I just want to say that I, I, I think that you've written a book that um, not only covers all of the issues that you uh, explore thoroughly and fairly, but I think your arguments are, are uh, carefully and well-crafted. I think it's, it's a, I think it's an important book that people ought to read. I hope that more people do. Thank you. Um, when, um, so the first question is: Is it? It's it. I, I've read some of your other work, and it seems that this book covers new ground compared to your earlier books. But I did find that some of the themes are also in your earlier works. And so, do you find this book is a continuation of what you've been working on for the last twenty years? Is it a you know a development of the same sort of ideas? I think so. Yeah. I mean, what this this book. Um, I think is important because it does uh, 
offer new ground, does cover new ground in terms of its focus on justice, focus on non-ideal theory, which no one has done before, and, and also in terms of uh, in terms of the particular ideal and non-ideal theories I I, I adopt. So it kind of um, it's a culmination of a study of of, of of other work. So a number of my other books have been based on an account, a critical account of the existing literature. What I tried to do in this book was to go beyond that and offer my own uh, position in the debate, um, which I don't think you can offer unless you you know have a pretty good understanding of, uh, of what exists. It's good advice for a PhD student. Though. Yeah, I I was going to ask you, and so I will. That you you mentioned quite extensively other uh, writers. You, we've talked about Rawls tonight, and you've mentioned some of the others. But there are a number of different people that you consider the ideas of in your book, and some of those um, ideas and many of the writers that you speak of may not be familiar to the casual reader. So I'm wondering who was the intended audience for the book. Well, uh, it's, I mean, it's aimed at, uh, first and foremost, I guess, at the academic market to make a contribution in, in academic political theory, um, which I think is an important objective, given that uh, that's the arena in which I work, and there are so few other people working in the area of animals within, within uh, academia. Uh, but I also try to make it as accessible as possible so that it would be of interest to the general reader um, how well I've achieved that difficult balance I don't know but uh, that, that was the, the, the goal and quite a lot of the, the, the conferences and, uh, and events I've, I've spoken at over the past couple of years have been have tended to be a mixture of academics and activists um, so I'm kind of used to working in that that environment. Um, but academic, I mean, one of the things which um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the British government now requires of academics is to show how their work impacts on uh, outside of academia. And so and this is a, I'd like to think that my, my work is a good example of, of how it does, how it does, how the work of academics can um, have a, a, an impact on uh, on social movements and on the general public. Even have, having gone through the process of writing this book, and as you as you um, mentioned a minute ago, it's I think true that in writing um, something, I, and I don't have any experience doing it, but I can only imagine that in writing something ex as extensive as this book is, um, y that's when you really come to know your own thinking on the subject probably in a way that you might not have if you hadn't written the book. I'm wondering, have you changed your mind about anything as a result of writing it? Yes, uh, probably on many things. I, I, I mean, the, the one important point to make is that, that um, I, I uh, um, explore these ideas in various conferences and talks and that's given me a lot of useful feedback and of course the the manuscript itself was looked at was sent out for review to numerous people who some of whom at least had a good understanding of this literature so I learned a lot from that too I think if I was to say one thing which on uh, one thing that my mind has changed and that's on the utility of using animal welfare um, and for the reasons I've explored, I, I explored earlier, I think, uh, although it's understandable why animal uh, animal groups um, appreciate the value of, of, of working within the animal welfare discourse, it, it is extremely problematic from a, an ethical point of view and raises question marks about whether there can be transformation from animal welfare to animal rights. But I also think too that one of the things I've come to realise is that, that I'm not sure that the public's understanding of animal welfare is the same as the 
um, uh, the, the scholars' accounts of it. I think I think the public confuse animal welfare as uh, uh, a science with animal welfare as an ethic, and because of that, um, I suspect that if public opinion, if the public were uh, it was explained to the public properly what animal welfare as an ethic meant um, in terms of the, you know, it, it, it being ethically justifiable to sacrifice the interests of animals to serve human benefits, then more people would be opposed to it. What people mean when, often mean when, you, when they're thinking about animal welfare is animal welfare as a science, i.e. The, the science of... Uh, animal well-being, and the, and the classic case in the book I use is of the the well-known animal welfare um, slogan of the Five Freedoms, which was originally um, uh, originally um, uh, part of the Bramble Committee's report on the reform of uh, factory farming in the UK in the 1960s. Now, the Five Freedoms. Was regard, is regarded as kind of the gold standard of animal welfare. But if you look at what it, it means, it is essentially the kind of rights-based position I'm advocating. Uh, it calls for the uh, to, for various freedoms, such as freedom from pain, freedom from uh, you know, from thirst, hunger, and so forth. Now, from an animal welfare pers- perspective, as an ethic, um, the five freedoms is is not an absolute because you know, it is permissible to inflict suffering on animals or to deprive them of food or water if by so doing you serve a human benefit. So the five, the five freedoms, which is this major gold standard of animal welfare, is not consistent with animal welfare as an ethic. Um, so that led me to think maybe that the public's understanding of animal welfare is, is not that good. And uh, um, so I'm, I'm much less... Uh, I'm much less optimistic about animal welfare achieving the goals, achieving any of the goals that animal advocates want. Um, and also it's divisive. I think the division between animal rights and animal welfare is, is a divisive one. And one of the aims of trying to adopt a more nuanced animal rights position, at least from a non-idea theory perspective, is to try to draw a, uh, some kind of consensus within the movement, which is more likely to be achieved um, you know, by using the issue of suffering and the right not to suffer. Um, and interestingly enough, the, um, um, in the run-up to the, the passing of the 1986 law on animal experimentation in the UK, most, most animal groups refused to get involved in the legislation on the grounds that it wasn't stringent enough. And even the RSPCA, which is regarded as a moderate animal welfare group, was uh, refused to get involved in the negotiations on the legislation until until the government agreed that uh, the suffering of animals should be eliminated in animal experimentation. And it seems to me that a useful coalition of groups could have been created around that uh, around that position. Um, now it may not have got very far with that particular um, piece of legislation, but I think it would have found, I think it would have resonated with public opinion. Most advocates for other animals say that even though not all human beings, for example, say those in the advanced stages of dementia, have every capacity that most human beings have, still all human beings have basic rights. However, some other animals probably have more capacities than to some humans. For example, a normal adult dog might have more cognitive capacities than would a human suffering from advanced dementia, but yet no other animals have rights. This seems unfair, and it seems that if even those humans with advanced dementia have basic rights, then most other animals ought to have such basic rights as well. As you point out, This argument runs through almost all of the literature on the rights of other animals. What's wrong with this argument? From a a logical point of view, not much. I think, you know, there's a a question mark about um, 
uh, an empirical question mark against the claim that um, all margin that you can lump all marginal humans into the same category. I mean, clearly there's a continuum there, and, and there are some who would argue that that in fact there's a relatively small number of humans who who who, who do have capacities which are which are uh, which are inferior to those of, of humans. But, but logically, it does follow, and as you say, it's been ubiquitous in the animal rights literature. Um, so, from a from a philosophical perspective, not much is wrong with it. I I think there are problems with it from a uh, uh, from a practical consensus because it's not an argument that's accepted, despite the fact that it may be logically coherent. Uh, it's not an argument that that resonates with public opinion. Um, so to use it as the, you know, the, the, the linchpin of an animal rights position seems to me to be problematic. Um, and also, you know, there's the claim that, that certainly in, in terms of, um, say, liberty as opposed to life, arguably marginal humans are treated differently from so-called um, normal humans. Um, in the sense that we wouldn't dream of giving uh, uh, a human with severe dementia the kind of freedoms that, that, that other adults have, um, we don't. We, you know, we, so so the um, the contrast between the treatment of human animals doesn't follow there, but clearly it does in the case of life. We wouldn't we wouldn't we don't regard it acceptable to uh, to routinely kill and torture. Uh, demented humans in some way that we do with animals. So I think it does have, it, it is, from a philosophical perspective, it, it is, uh, it seems to me to be a, a logically uh, sound argument, but it, uh, it has so little political resonance, not least from animal advocates themselves. I mean, when I've been to, uh, uh, given talks at, at, at meetings of activists and have raised the, the argument for marginal cases, it's, it's very noticeable how many animal advocates say, well, we, we find it offensive that you're comparing animals with uh, um, with marginal humans in that way. Um, so it doesn't seem to work with all animal advocates either. Thanks, Rob. Rob, we've almost run out of time, and okay. there's, so, there's so much more that we could speak with you about, but is there anything that you'd like to mention that we've not thought to ask you about today? I don't think so. No, I think you've, you've covered the ground very well. Um, you've obviously read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rob. It, it's been our absolute pleasure, as always, speaking with you today. I wanted to thank you for joining us today, and I also want to thank you for everything that you continue to do on behalf of both humans and other animals. Thanks very much. I'm, I'm delighted to, uh, um, to be on Animal Rights Zone. Thanks, Rob. Listening to AR Zone. Please visit us online at www.arzone.net and look for us on iTunes.